0: welcome to encounter grace where we come face to face with god's work in the world for our good join host jason mcknight as we explore practical issues of community theology and leadership in everyday life
1: hey everyone welcome to another episode of encounter grace my name is ben hendricks and i'm here as always with jason mcknight and I'm so excited today yeah. to get you to ask this question, that one that I've uh, I've just been really excited and eager to learn from you on, because I think it's one that we, as a culture, have been wrestling with. And many people, mm. just whether it's in our church, uh, in our student ministry, just so many people are wrestling with a topic that, that we're hearing all the time, whether it's on the news, on social media, in regular conversations even, just everywhere, like, it's, it's one that leads us, I think, to a question that, we're dying to know. Wow. It's this. What? What's so bad with Marxism? Hmm. And so the question then is, why in the world of all the things that we could be talking about on this podcast, why are we talking about this? And so first, it's not to set up some straw man that we can set up here and we yeah. can beat up and make our, ourselves feel really good about our position. But we do it, that in staff meetings. Yeah, <laughs> naturally, <laughs> off air. Right. But... but I know we want to talk about this, and one of the reasons I brought this topic up was to better bring to light this Mm -hmm. ideology and the outworkings of it, of Marxism, that so often leads to a very problematic result. And the second reason is because as i've as i've looked at marxism i've found that there's a great disconnect between generations of how different generations are viewing marxism hmm. so here's what i mean interesting so and again the, the the defining line here we can blur a little bit and it's a bit arbitrary but I, what i found is about 40s and up like,
0: the greatest generation.
1: Uh, all the good-looking, yeah. the <laughs> that, yep, It's just yeah, downhill from there. Uh, they Like, the 40s and up, they know what's wrong with Marxism. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe it's because they've experienced it. Maybe they've read about it. Maybe they've just seen it on the news or whatever. But they've seen so many examples over and over again of the problems that do, in fact, arise when we have this this ideology. Right. But here's the problem. It's kind of the 30s and down, my, mm-hmm. my generation mm-hmm. down, that I'm not sure that we do. Hmm. And I think a lot of that's because we're hearing a mix of news. Like, so often, whether again, it's social media, on the news, outlets itself, or just the internet, or wherever it is, and in influencers or whatever, we're hearing promises of the utopia that Marxism can right. and will create if you'll just give it enough effort. Right. And then, on the other side, oftentimes, we can get a bit of a distaste with so many of the sources that are actually speaking out against Marxism. Uh-huh. We call them the fuddy-duddies. We call them the fundies. We call them boomers. What, yeah, yeah. <laughs> boomers. <laughs> My kids. <laughs> we call them, we have so many names for them because, oh, and, and it helps distance ourselves. We don't have to yeah. actually answer the, the problem because you're over there. and Why would I ever listen to you? And so naturally what this has done, I think, is that it leads to somewhat of an ambivalent outlook of these for 30s and under for... And we begin to beg, or beg, we begin asking this question: What, what really is so bad about Marxism? Is it really that bad? Mm-hmm. And is this just something? Or is this just people wanting to be controlling or manipulative or dishonest? And so, I've actually even seen this personally. Uh, oh. This summer, we we take we, a bunch of our students to a camp out in the mountains, and. One of the coolest things that they do is every night they have a time for share groups where they break, them, break our students up with lead, different leaders that the camp gives us. And at different times, I'll be in those groups and sometimes not. In this group, I was, I, I'd gone to a different group. And so the leader asked this question. He's teaching on what they had talked about. And it's one of the things they talked about a little bit was critical race theory, which has yep. some, such a strong tie to Marxism and the guy asks after all this he goes one of the things I love to do on the last night is ask do you have any major questions? Any question you're wrestling with, struggling with mm-hmm. and you don't know uh, theological, practical, it doesn't matter, whatever it is I le- maybe yeah. I know the answer, maybe I don't and so one of our students uh, he, he just goes yeah I, I have one that I've I've been thinking about, I hear it all the time and I don't know what to do with it because I hear so many people they say it's really bad but I, I look at it and I hear this thing, and I don't know how it's so bad and he goes what what's so bad about Marxism that we had a high school student who's been hearing these things he's been wrestling with some of this whether it's on the news whether it's social media yeah, whatever yeah. who has heard Marxism has heard other people say that it's good while others that he's close to say it's bad and he's wrestling with this question why is Marxism so bad So, Jason, today, that's what I want to wrestle. That's what we can wrestle with. And you're going to answer once and for all, as always. Once and for all, (laughs) as always.
0: Boy, I wish my kids would know that. Once and for all, for always. No. Well, you know, it is fun. And I remember, in fact, we were just talking about this. I remember the Berlin Wall falling Hmm. in 1989. I was in college. And it was just an amazing thing because I grew up, I mean, I'm born in 73. So I grew up height of the Cold War, and, um, you know, nobody even heard of the Muslim world because all we were focused on was the communist bloc, uh, this thing called communism, which has its roots in Marxism. And and today, now, you know, that that goes away, 89, 90, 91, Czechoslovakia no longer, now it's Czech and Slovak. So what is this thing? So here's what I thought we could do, Ben, uh, is talk about Karl Marx and his philosophy at the beginning, and then in the middle for a little quick moment, just take a little romp through the 20th century oh, nice. <laughs> and <laughs> touch down in a bunch of countries and see what happened when it got put there and then thirdly near the end is let's talk then well what's it looking like today in terms of cultural Marxism so that's three parts of the podcast let's jump in Karl Marx uh, in the in the 1840s now by the time he writes, the Communist Manifesto, for which he's known, which is 1848, he's been kicked out of Prussia. He's Prussian, that's the old word for German. He's Prussian, uh, he's been kicked out of Prussia, he's been kicked out of France, he's been kicked out of Belgium, because his writings are just too hot. And so now he lands in London, and uh, in working with Frederick Engels, and he writes in 1848 a little tract called The Communist Manifesto. And then over the next five or seven years, he writes the three-volume work Das Kapital, which is all the German I know. Uh, (laughs) I don't even know what it means. Capital, capitalism. uh, And about the evils of this thing called capitalism that he's witnessing for the last 20 years there in uh, Europe and now in London. I've not read Das Kapital, I've read parts of Communist Manifesto, but what does he say? Before we get to that, I do want to say one thing because you and I love this. We think context matters. Where someone lives in history actually affects how they see things. He's thinking and he's writing at the height of the Industrial Revolution. And we shouldn't say the height, we should say the depths (laughs) of the truly horrifying working conditions for vast numbers of factory workers, for men, for women, for children, working all day long, 10 hours, 12, 14 hour days, six days a week. You ever heard of a thing called Sunday school? You know why they invented Sunday school? Because churches need to disciple people. Why Sunday school? Because they're working hmm. 12 and 14 hours the other six days a week. Anyway, they're living in squalor. They're losing limbs in these terrifying machines. They're getting barely a pittance uh, to, uh, in pay. And on top of that, they're swept out of the beautiful countryside of England into these slums in the city of London. And it's just hmm. truly horrifying. And Marx sees this and he explores it. And he's not the only one, by the way, just for fun. (laughs) He's not the only one who sees this and explores it. Charles Dickens also worked tirelessly against the evils of the early stage of the Industrial Revolution. He did it through. Why Now go ahead? Novel writing.
1: Yeah. He changed hearts. It's kind of like how Harriet Beecher Stowe did the same thing when she, uh, I mean, wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. Yeah, like it changed absolutely. the generation in their view of slavery. Because
0: of the heart. You yeah. change the heart. Which is so interesting. C.S. Lewis, the most important apologist in the 20th century, was a literature guy. Mm. Not a scientist. Maybe the sciences aren't where it's at for heart change, life change, worldview change. Well, but that's another day. It's
1: amazing how you, when you invite people into a story, when they, yeah. I mean, Well, good and evil, it it can change things. Alas,
0: Marx was not a storyteller. He was, uh, in his mind, a scientist. And so he set about scientifically to study economic history of the world and how we got to this industrial revolution, free market, capitalism, and where we need to go. So, though he said he was a scientist, really what he was was a philosopher, a worldview philosopher, because he set out uh, more of a worldview, a creation story, a fall story and a redemption story. <laughs> Actually, if you look at it, that's what it is. And um, Nancy Piercy writes about this in Total Truth. In the Way. She, but he considered hmm. the world once in this beautiful, pristine state. Garden of Eden. A classless society. And everything went wrong when private property came into the world. The idea that I can own something and you can own something. And then I can take it from you and on and on. Because oppression comes in. And those with more oppress those with less, and his proof was eighteen forties. And
1: this is starting to sound very much like a worldview already. Like it is. I mean, yeah.
0: we're talking worldview. There's, yeah, we're starting there's to no see good and evil, yeah.
1: and yeah, just right from the get go.
0: So it, it, it is exactly it, and and as yeah. we're exploring worldview here on the podcast, this is yet another one. So yeah. capitalism equals oppression because property is oppressive, and this is what he's saying in the eighteen forties, and they go hand in glove. Marx says, though, hey guys, there's a way out. There's a redemption story. Let's -hmm. abolish private property. Let's remove the oppressor class. Let's return to Eden. He wouldn't say it that way, but let's return to Eden, i.e. a classless society, a stateless society. And he famously said, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need, nothing more, nothing less. For Marx, The proletariat, now I love this big word, (laughs) proletariat, this vast group of workers, not the owners, but the group of workers are going to win the day if they rise up against the bourgeoisie, those fat cats, the top dogs, the owners of the means of production. Okay, so that's what Marx is saying. By the way, he, as all great revolutionary thinkers do, he thought outside the box. Philosophers, Mm. which is basically what he's doing, philosophers say, look. The, the the goodness of my ideas are going to bubble up. And so I just need to keep talking about them in my tweed coats and pipes. Oh, this is what we do. Yeah, it's the podcasters yeah. of the day. <laughs> <laughs> and they just hope to persuade people one at a time because my righteous cause will grow. Mark says, forget that. Let's go out and achieve something. Mm. And he knew that in order to motivate people, he has to appeal to their economic self-interest. Huh. So much for each according to his need and ability and all that stuff. Anyway, he, so he says, let's not just go individual by individual, let's go for the whole group, the whole class of oppressed workers who are being held down by these fat cats, being messed up by the bourgeois owners. Hmm. Get all the workers together and we'll achieve the action that's needed. Workers of the world, unite. Now, by the way, every person over 60 finished that on the podcast. And you didn't even know about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Workers of the world, unite. Uh, so his appeal is to the group you belong to. You're a worker. That's what matters. Not the individual. You're a jerk. That doesn't matter. Okay. You're a kind person. That doesn't matter. It's the, it's the group you belong We're going to overthrow the bourgeoisie, which I just love saying. I'll say it seven more times. The, so the bourgeoisie.
1: The major idea here is that, like... I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is that your identity is coming from the group that you're in. And so, I mean, you see the step. Yeah, well, and your value starts becoming defined not by the accomplishments that you have or your even your own thoughts, but by the identity of the group, right? Yeah,
0: not by your personal, yeah. but by your group. And this is interesting because that's a hallmark of the Marxist view of the world. And again, okay. we're still talking Marx, 1848. We're still talking how he's developing it, but it's right there, seedbed. Group identity is our essential identity. Your individual person doesn't matter on that same level at all. What group you're in is really the thing that matters. Okay. So, so far Marx, (laughs) he's done away with private property and the free market and the means of production because that's the source of all oppression. I'm, I'm talking in his mind. Sure. And he's done away with individuality and group identity is the source of all meaning and worth. So let's pause and take stock. Is private property evil? Is it oppressive? Is group identity our most essential identifier? Mm. Well, one thing that's true is we can see great oppression in the history of the world. We're not saying the world is pristine and Marx got it all wrong. We're saying he drew the wrong conclusions. We're saying, yes, we've seen oppression in the world. It's overwhelmingly by those with more, more guns, (laughs) more swords, more legions, more whatever. It's a fact of life. Because we live in a fallen world. Yeah. The question is, does Marx make the best sense of it?
1: Which is, the, I mean, the, kind of the foundation of a, of a worldview is, yeah. does this worldview make the most sense for what actually is real and what is there?
0: Right. And like, I don't yeah. think he does. I don't even yeah. think he comes close. Um, you know, you and I have a category for the oppression that comes. Yeah. It's not the wealth per se. It's the sinfulness of the human heart. Yeah. We have seen abused... Uh, people and and people abusing people and treading them down. And we know that uh, Scripture teaches that the human heart is deceitful above all else. Hmm. We know that there's right and wrong in this world and that we all are on the wrong side. No, none are righteous. So Marx doesn't have that category because he has no God. Hmm. He's atheist. And so he has no explanation for right and wrong. So he searches scientifically, quote unquote, for a reason. And he comes up with, oh, Private property, wealth, and that's what equals oppression. We know it's our fallenness. He says it's got to be wealth. Okay. So he's accounting for it in the wrong way. Hmm. Marx says, you know what? Wealth is what causes oppression. Christ says the human heart is what causes oppression. Mark says, get rid of wealth, we'll solve it all. Christ says, invite me in and no. I'll solve it all over time and haltingly, because we're still all sinners, beset by uh, remaining sin. So, for Marx himself, property and wealth are the oppressors, and group identity, proletariat or bourgeoisie, that's the main feature about you, and that's really all that matter. So that's him back in 1840s, and that's the seedbed. Those two big things, we're going to talk about a third one later, but those two things, if you miss that, we miss everything. That property is the oppressor, wealth is the oppressor, group identity is the most essential identity. Okay. So fascinating. I mean, that's just like thumbnail. You know, there's a reason I don't teach in a university because I love bringing things to regular people.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's some middle ground between just doing the... 30,000 feet and
0: reading the Communist Manifesto. but <laughs> So what's next? So let's go to, let's just quickly here for a couple of minutes talk about what happened when Marxism was uh, put into place in countries, in nations. Yeah. And there it's called communism. So Marxism is, though he says he's not a philosopher, it's more the philosophy. But when it gets... Boots on the ground, literally, goose-stepping. We're talking communism. It's it's what we call communism. And what's happened in countries that have adopted Marxist theory? Now, the first thing we have to say right here and right now is nobody adopted Marxist theories. Everyone adopted Marxist-Leninist theories. Because Lenin got a hold of this, not John. Not John Lennon and the and the Beatles, but Vladimir Lenin. You know that name, yeah, for yeah, sure. Of course you do. <laughs> I'm just playing. I know you do. Uh, Vladimir Lenin adopted and adapted Marxism, and he made it even more forceful than Marxists ever say. But the Bolsheviks took over the Russian uh, Empire, which had become a republic for six months, it took over in the October Revolution, 1917, which is why we all watched the movie The Hunt for Red October, yeah, because it's you know that that great submarine. Which is fictional, but about about the October Revolution, Mao, over there Mao Zedong in China, he adopted Marxist-Leninist communism for China, in uh, you know he tried it for ten years, but by the late forties after the war, uh, it it was throughout China, and you know he had a chicken in every pot and all that kind of stuff, and it was a disaster. Um, okay, post World War II when they carved up Europe, which again that's a little history podcast for another day. The USSR imposed communism on Eastern Europe. And and over time, they developed the Warsaw Pact of nations, which would would counter the NATO Pact of nations. And what I love, what I love is that so many of the former Warsaw Pact nations now are in NATO. (laughs) I love this. So anyway, but Poland, East Germany, Hungary, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Bulgaria, Moldova, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, and on and on and on. By the way, also in Russia, all the stands, Kyrgyzstan, Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, um, Kazakhstan, all these stands are just part of the USSR, but there's country after country after country. Let's go to Asia. There's North Korea still to this day. Now, that guy's a little bit nuts, and his dad and his grandfather, but it's Marxist Leninism with a little, you know, Kim Jong un twist. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Afghanistan at different times, mm-hmm. Yemen. In Africa, you can go to Ethiopia, Somalia, Congo, Angola, Mozambique, Benin, not all right now, but over the last hundred years, specifically since World War II. You can come to the Americas, (laughs) I mean Venezuela. Venezuela is so sad. Yep. More oil than any country in the world, except for three. And the average Venezuelan adult has lost 17 pounds. And it is illegal today to put malnourishment as the cause of death on an infant death certificate in Venezuela, because they have to cover it up. But there, it should be the wealthiest place in the in the uh, in the South America, Cuba. Okay, you know Cuba. You know they're they're sending doctors to South America so that they can get hard currency. They keep the doctor's family in Cuba. They send the doctor to other countries, Brazil and places. The Brazilian government pays the Cuban government in hard currency. That's the only way they can get it. It's slave labor. Wow. It's slave labor. in Cuba. We can talk all the more with Fidel, but we're not going to because you know all about that. I just think what a great example of the worker's paradise. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. All these countries we've just named, when they were communists, and some of them still are, would you have wanted to move to them? I mean, if you're not Bernie Sanders. But I... <laughs> would you have wanted to? You want the great quality of life, the great prosperity, the liberty, the advancements, the... Come on. It's a yeah. tragic treading down of a population at every turn. Hmm. I mean, we were talking just before about the Berlin wall going up sixty years ago in one night. Not all the concrete but all the barbed wire in one night. They had to stop it. They had to stanch the flow. A quarter of East Germany had left the East Germans since the end of World War Two. They oh, said, wow. We want freedom. And and Moscow calls, you know, Berlin and says, You gotta stop this. And Berlin said, We don't know what to do and Moscow says, you'll figure it out (laughs) or it's the gulag for you. (laughs) I don't know what accent that was. (laughs) So the worker's paradise is just a wonderful thing. This thing called Marxism, communism, as it was uh, put into place. Now, you know, what we all know is that uh, it's not the worker's paradise unless you're a worker in the Politburo, Hmm. unless you're in the the upper echelons of the Chinese Communist Central Party thing. It's great for you, for everyone else, whatever. We'll get back to China in one second. Um, Centralized planning instead of like, like they'll just say, oh yeah, for the next two years, we're going to produce 700,050 washing machines. And that's that. Yeah. And so, you know, the 800,000 people need washing machines. Well, 50,000 people don't get to wash their clothes.
1: Hmm.
0: Instead of the market being able to respond. Instead of like efficiencies coming into play. It's just crazy. Not to mention the secret police. Because you've That's always true. got to root out the bourgeoisie. <laughs> I I read That's this. Point. Uh, I yeah. mean, I, I, you know, I read this uh, the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn. It's fascinating. It's just amazing. I mean, they had hundreds of camps with thousands, thousands in each camp. Yeah. Untold hundreds of thousands of people died in the hinterlands of Siberia, just walking to and from the work sites because they didn't care. <laughs> I mean, there's no death certificate. Yeah. I, can't, I cannot wait to see on the, on the last day when God raises everyone up to life, how many of the believers come up to life out of mm-hmm. the tundra of Siberia, you know, forgotten by everyone. Anyway, it's just fascinating when you think of it as it's been applied in nation after nation. The fact that it still has a foothold anywhere is unbelievable because the empirical evidence is in. Yeah. Like, I'm not just trying to—even China, which to this day still— I mean, 100 years of the Chinese Communist Party, they just celebrated it this summer— The only reason China as a country is not a basket case is because Deng Xiaoping in the 80s adopted market reforms because Mm. you cannot run an economy, especially not a billion person economy, (laughs) seven people in a room in Beijing. You can't do it central planning. The only reason there's the Chinese dream today is that for 30 years they've been running a free market economy except with the Chinese communists over top. And and you're watching this with Alibaba and the Ant Group and all these other things. Xi Jinping thinks he can control it. He thinks they're big enough now as a country and strong enough that he can override the principles of free market economics. Right. You're going to watch in the next year or two the utter uh, 100% flight of Any money on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, it's going to be gone. There is not a single Westerner going to keep their money there. There's not a single Saudi Arabian going to keep their money on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. Once the third most important in the world. But they've lost all their democratic rights this summer while no one was watching. Hmm. While we all were watching and weeping because no one was saying anything from our capitals in the West. It's just crazy. Marxism, communism, in play in nations is a disaster and uh, for the life of me <laughs> why anyone still thinks this is great I have no idea gosh I just have no idea now
1: and I think that's one of the problems is just that so many people don't see the hard evidence of how it's played out and just I mean again like it's not like this hasn't been tried right like, and I, maybe the maybe, maybe some of the pushback would be well the problem is we haven't seen actual Marxism we've only seen Marxism Lenin, like Leninism like put together and may, and it's maybe the, the same thing yeah, yeah. and I, and I would say the same thing but I, I wonder how for some of the people who are such advocates for this, or even for those who are just kinda like, well, still hoping for the utopia. Mm-hmm. Like the truth is the it doesn't seem like the utopia ever actually comes with it. Never came. And every single story, every did. single example, yeah, it's I mean it's almost like we have to, you're willing to sacrifice anyone for the benefit of the country. Like mm-hmm. how does that bring I mean
0: Yeah. Anyways. I mean I mean I remember reading on the wall of a museum. Vladimir Lenin's quote, it doesn't matter if three quarters of the world's population has to, has to die as long as the last quarter is communist. Hmm. They don't care about individuals. That way of looking at the world is your group. That's it. Wow. I mean, you're about to have a daughter. She does not matter. Yeah. Unless she's a member of X class. Yeah. And it's just it's just unbelievable that it still has a toehold anywhere. I, I just don't... It, It boggles the mind. Yeah. The the part that gets me is the pure arrogance of just
1: like saying like, I mean, again, three, it doesn't matter how much of the world's population has to go as long as we're the last one because we're the right ones. And, you know, some Mm -hmm. of that's got to be grounded in not because the evidence is so clear that you're right. It's just the belief that you are
0: because you're in it. It's an amazing thing when, and, and we all see this in our own lives. What we're talking about here is ideology on a huge scale, but we yeah. all see it in our own lives. We see um, that that when I really, really, really want something, I'll rationalize all day long. Oh, yeah. Oh. And, and without the Holy Spirit and the Word of God and people like you saying, don't be an idiot, McKnight, I'll do it. It's true. I'm... Unfortunately, the same exact boat. I see it <laughs> no, all the time for you. Yeah. All right. So where's Marxism in play today? Because obviously we're not talking about the Gulag Archipelago. I mean, that's sure. interesting. But if the Soviet Union fell, and if China had to abandon economic Marxism in order to survive, and if everyone knows the basket case of Cuba and Venezuela, why are we even talking about Marxism today? Isn't it on the dustbin of history? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's what we got to talk about here. Well, it still grows in certain corners of Western cultural centers. And this is not an American thing. It's also true in Canada, in um, the UK, and in Western Europe. Now, because Europe was so close to the USSR, it has a little more suspicion, suspicion of it. America and Canada, man, you know, we, we're protected by two big oceans. And yeah. <laughs> we think we're, we're immune to anything. But we see cultural Marxism in the academy, in activist movements, in pop culture in different ways, in social media, we see it in even, you know, feel the burn. We see it in some elected yeah. officials. It's amazing that you can see unashamedly Marxist in their worldviews. They don't hide it, which at least I appreciate. Yeah, And you can true. vote for them as they are. You, you hate the ones that say I'm a Democrat, uh, a democracy lover on the one hand, and then come out, you know, hiding it on the other. So, sure. so yeah. all right. Cultural Marxism, just like big Marx, says two things that he did. First is group identity is the only measure of worth or value. That's the thing. The individual really doesn't matter in and of themselves. It's the group you're in that matters. So today's Marxist mm-hmm. says, if you're white, cis male, you're an oppressor. Yeah. So that's may sound provocative. And, and maybe someone is listening saying, oh, McKnight's just showing his white fragility or something. I'm not. I'm tracing the outcome of an argument. The bourgeoisie today, in the minds of a cultural Marxist, is the white male patriarchy who holds all the power and nobody else has any. Hmm. And you know, tell that to the poor white guy living in redneck land in a in a little mobile home that leaks and his and his landlord is and his wife's disabled, his kids are on meth, and he's got no hope and no chance. He's part of the oppressor class. Because he's heterosexual yeah. and he's white, like this doesn't make any sense. Mm. But that's what happens when you take group identity and make that the marker. Again, we're not yeah. saying there's no abuse of power in the history of the world. There yeah, is. there absolutely is. You're right. And the gospel has a great answer for that—a mm. better one than Marx. As this just reminds me so much of I me.
1: Mean, what we were talking about—I uh, I think that was two weeks ago. It came out where we were talking about the just a, a biblical worldview and yeah. like why that is. And, I mean the. Just that level right there is hitting at least two or three of them. I mean, the foundational point that we talked about of the foundation of a biblical worldview is that a creator creates with beauty, order, and laws. I mean, mm-hmm. God, because he creates, he's the one who defines where your identity comes from. It comes from the Imago day, yep. not from the color of your skin, not because of your wealth or power or whatever. Like, that's where your value comes from. And then at least the second one as well of humans have dignity. Right. Like, again, that dignity doesn't come from these things. It does, and it in an, in that for it definitely means that the government shouldn't be able to just toss you into some gulag because you don't fit the narrative sure. or you don't yeah. fit the right class or group or whatever. Yeah, like it's just so interesting that this is so quickly has become a worldview
0: and one that well, so deeply taken root. Yeah. and and so widely adopted, especially when we see the dustbin of history. It is mm-hmm. it is fascinating. So. All right, group identity. I think we can go around and around on that, and realize, uh, you know, and see, yeah, that that is yeah. not the best way to understand people. Yeah, understand them as individuals, responsible for who they are, and yes, uh, at the mercy of their environments to a large degree, but never to say you're doomed by your group identity. Yeah. Second thing, Marx said, as we said, is that wealth or ownership is oppressive, and today's Marxism also devalues the importance. Of wealth in the spread of opportunity, and for that you mm. just go back to, you know, which countries give more opportunity for people to better themselves and to grow out of uh, what they inherited as their station in life, and it's the West by far. I mean, there's it's just no contest. Mm. It is no contest, and I'll, and I'll and a statistic all you want, but I'm not going to write here. But it's just it's just crazy, and that's not to say there's no oppression. I'm yeah. not saying that at all. Marx noticed it. Dickens noticed it. (laughs) Every biblical prophet noticed it. It's true. But Marx had the wrong answer. That's all. Marx had the wrong answer. It's not the wealth itself. Wealth is just a tool. It's the human heart that is the oppressor. By the way, private property is God's idea, which is maybe a little provocative. Maybe someone under 30 hearing this right now is like, oh, man, I'm turning this thing off. Private property is God's idea. He never speaks against it in Scripture. He always speaks against hoarding it. He Mm -hmm. always speaks against being stingy and ungenerous and inhospitable. So amen to that. And every person listening to this, let's be more generous. It is not about your 401k balance. It's about your neighbor. Mm -hmm. Okay. But you're making that decision, not the government. Mm -hmm. But God actually thought up private property. He thought up the idea that you, Ben, should be responsible for the things he gives you to steward accountable to him.
1: Yeah, that's what I was thinking is this, so much of that seems to be under this major idea of stewardship that yeah. he owns it also. He's given you yeah. to own and, and to steward and to, to run well. Yeah.
0: Yeah, no doubt about it. And in, in fact, Ten Commandments, thou shalt not steal. I mean, it's because yeah. God's regulating in the Ten Commandments the gifts he's given. He's regulating marriage, hmm. no adultery. He's radi- regulating life, no murder. He's regulating private property. No stealing. Sure. At the end of all things, I love this, you know, because Hamilton, we all watched Hamilton and, <laughs> and George Washington, let's teach him how to say goodbye and that great, the best song in the whole thing. And, he, and you know, he brings out this line from Micah 4:4, I want to go back to Mount Vernon and every man under his own vine and fig tree. Hmm. And that's the picture of the end. But do you see that? His own vine and fig tree. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the picture when God says to his prophets, hey, make it, tell them what it's going to be like in the consummation of all things, we're gonna sit under our own vine and fig tree. Amen. And it's a good thing and we're gonna be generous and ready to share, I'm telling you. Okay, Uh, private property, all right, and then group identity, all right. A third thing, today's cultural Marxism, so we haven't talked about this before, so um, words, (laughs) language, (laughs) cultural Marxism today, uh, they wanna destabilize the language and the words that we use, and they're always keeping us off balance. And this is on purpose. Anyone who's trying to keep us off balance is lining up with cultural Marxism as it has come through the Frankfurt School of the 1930s. Herbert Marcuse was big on this in the Frankfurt School. Um, For cultural Marxists, words are tools, not signposts. I said that really slowly so you wouldn't. Yeah. Mess up. Words are tools, not signposts. For the rest of us, they're signposts. Yeah. <laughs> so stick with me. Most people think of words as a symbol of reality. That is, they stand in place of a real thing. So we think of a real thing when a word is used. You say "plant," I think of a plant. Yeah. You know, you say "apple," I think of an iPhone. No, I'm kidding. I think of a red <laughs> shiny thing. <laughs> you know, think of you say "dog," I'm thinking of four-legged Fido. Okay, all that stuff symbols of an underlying reality and they stand in place of it to enable us to communicate and think together but for the cultural marxist words aren't symbols of an underlying reality they're tools tools to get the job done the job of overthrowing the oppressors to Uh, deconstruct reality and reconstruct it in there
1: that seems really problematic right from the get-go if because
0: if every if every single word is a tool
1: then you can start using that tool about any way that you want because you start losing the reality of what it actually means
0: it's exactly what they do okay this is what happens i mean this is from starting at starting at politically correct speech which yeah. there's always a kernel just like marx <laughs> looking at the industrial revolution and he's saying hey we got this isn't good. there's always a kernel of good thing you shouldn't be telling racist jokes mm. <laughs> this is a bad thing especially yeah. if you're a christian you should not And so politically correct, you know, we're all like, oh, well, yeah, that's good. You know, I shouldn't, you know, say that bad joke that I learned when I was 12. Okay. But taken to the extreme, they're saying what you can and can't say. And it's censorship. Mm. I mean, (laughs) when Twitter can uh, censor a sitting president and suspend his account because they're afraid of him hurting people in what he says, that's not a good thing. Now, yeah. I'm no friend of Trump's Twitter trash. I'm not. Yeah, same. But, but the idea that, oh, we can't have that out there. That is the exact opposite of this, this Western ideal of free speech. Yeah. And let the individuals decide. You know, Martin Luther, back at the beginning of the Reformation, when people around him were panicked of, of uh, Muslims coming up into Europe because they were coming up into the Austro-Hungarian Empire, he said, hey. Let me help translate the Quran, which he did.
1: Hmm.
0: Let me help translate the Quran. We'll line it up beside the New Testament, and you'll see, because truth will out. Amen. But not today. Today, we got to suspend anyone who says one wrong thing, and it's it crazy. And uh, not just anyone. I mean, I realize, you know, Trump kind of made his own bed, and now he has to lie in it. Yeah. But everything else. I mean, it's yeah. crazy. We're seeing censorship all the time. I think if I were an immigrant from the Soviet Union, I would have chills up and down my spine. Hmm. I would, I would be very scared. Words are important. They're real. And the Marxists today are saying, now they're just tools. And so name your own pronouns and away we go. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. I mean, I'm just saying, here's the worst part about it. It's a word based universe we live in. Yeah. And God said, let there be light. So that really means something light actually is not a tool the word light it actually refers to something and on and on and on and the word became flesh words are not tools they are uh the reality behind them so that's the last reason i think why today's cultural marxism is rather dangerous and and i'm not being alarmist and i love you know live and let live but it's like come on yeah i mean group identity uh, wealth and then and property as the oppressor. It's not, it's just a yeah. tool. And then words are not a tool, but they say they are.
1: It's oh, so helpful. A- I love those three things, just takeaways. Again, just say them again, that group identity is the only measure of our worth or value. Again, such a problematic idea that and wealth or ownership and then ultimately words, just the changing from uh, words mm-hmm. as ideas and as signposts is what you said, I think, mm-hmm. and all the way to tools of how we can use them and use them also against people. Jason, thank that's you that, so much. It. Just for this, this has been so clarifying for me as I've kind of wrapped my head around this, and I hope clarifying for many of our viewers and listeners as well, whether they're yep. under 30 or <laughs> agreeing to every single thing you said and over 40. Uh, and
0: push back. Let's talk. Yeah.
1: And I, yeah, exactly. And I think this is what we wanted was just to, to begin the conversation yeah. uh, because ultimately we're not afraid of the biblical worldview and mm-hmm. no matter how things are pushing against it. But... Uh, But thank you so much just for taking the time to come up with all this and and really to answer this for me and so many of our listeners. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of this. Uh, We'll see you next time.
0: This is a ministry of Grace Fellowship Church in Kinston, North Carolina. Visit gracekinston.org or follow us on Facebook.